am uh, I'm excited about today. I don't know about you guys. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the theme, the pattern that was taking place there. As we, We've been in our series now for seven weeks on identity. We've been going through it, and we've been diving into it. It's hard to believe how quickly we're kind of going through it. Uh, we actually started the week after Labor Day. Now we are one week away from, from Halloween and the Harvest Festival. And we're, Do you realize that we're only... 31 days away from Thanksgiving. 31 days away from Thanksgiving. You know what's awesome thing for me about being 31 days away from Thanksgiving? As a week before Thanksgiving, we're going to be home with our two kids from China. So excited about that. Going to be extra thankful about Yes, I, I am. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about what God is doing. I'm excited about how God is doing it. And then we look just even just a little bit further. You realize today is October 25th, which means two months from today. Two months from today is Christmas. And three months from today, I'm 40. So that's a whole other thing. But two months away from today, do you realize that if you walk into my house right now and you walk into my bedroom, that my entire side of the bed is nothing but Christmas presents that have been wrapped? Because my wife got it on, to, on the ball and she took care of it all and, and now it's all there. And those are, I just stare at them when I wake up in the morning and I'm like, hey, hey, hey. But just got that Christmas feeling inside. What can I say? You know, you know, it's even more crazy as I look at all the things that are happening, how quickly everything is going, that on January 2nd and 3rd, which is the weekend after, uh, after Christmas, after New Year's, it is actually our 300th Sunday as a church, 300th weekend as a church. And we're going to celebrate that day. We're going to celebrate. I know most of you are going to be thinking, yeah, I always love to come to church the day after New Year's. But we're going to make it where you actually want to. You may actually want to be a part of it. And the even bigger thing for me is this is the weekend following it, our 301st Sunday. And the reason why, because I think as we get into 2016, as we get into everything that we're doing, we're going to basically have a relaunch. And we're going to say, guys, we need to get on the ball of what we're doing. Because even as I look that next week is, is Christmas, or I'm sorry, next, yeah, whew, uh, next week is Halloween, and we look at October 31st, do you realize that two years from next weekend is our last weekend in this building? Our, our lease expires on October 31st, 2017, and in the next two years, we are moving forward, and we're going to be moving and seeing what God has for us and where he has us to go. I'm excited about that. I'm a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit nervous, but God has it all under control, and I'm so excited about it, and I'm so excited to even sing these songs this morning to say, God, it is all you. It's not me. It's all about what you have for us, and we are giving you in control. I'm laying down my life. I'm, I'm laying down my pride. I'm putting it here. And as we're diving in this identity thing, I think it's the theme that we're seeing, even as we sing it this morning, is that our identity is found in the fact that we can lay it down and give it to God and let him identify us and let him define who we are. And as we've been going in through this from the very beginning, that very first week, I gave you a postcard that said, I am blank, and I asked you to fill in that blank, and I asked you to hold on to it, and I asked you, don't make it something spiritual, you're not turning into me, you don't get it graded for it, just tell me who you are, tell me what defines you, tell me who defines you. And, and tell me these things and, and tell yourself and be reminded that as we go through this, that things are going to change. Because the first thing I said to you is this, we need to fill in that blank with something maybe a little bit different than what you're normal to. Because a lot of times we'll take our title, we'll take something that we do, we'll take our job, we'll take something and fill in that blank and say that is what defines us. But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than what we do. Because, you know, there's people during the meet and greet, when you're first meeting somebody, you're like, hey, what's your name? So what do you do? And we let that define us, but that's not it. And that's what we've been trying to change the perspective of, trying to change how we view it. Because the first thing we needed to understand is that we are created. 
That is how we define ourselves. I am created. That's how we fill in that first blank. I am created by God for a purpose and with a purpose. If we don't have that as a foundation of our identity, we're going to be screwed up for the rest of the way through it all. We're not going to have the right perspective. We're going to think we're some sort of accident, but we were created by God on purpose for a purpose. And in that purpose, we learned the second week, we looked and said, God has created us, Adam sinned, and he fell. And that falling caused us all to fall. And as we fell, we were either in Adam or because God sent his one and only son, but we are also have the option to be in Christ. And as we define ourselves in either Adam or in Christ, that's how God defines us. Either Adam or in Christ. And if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we are in Christ. And then we did this when we flipped over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, we started reading what it meant to be in Christ. Because, you know what, 2,000 years ago, people who had heard the very fresh news stories, maybe had even witnessed what had taken place, were struggling with being a follower of Christ and what that meant. So Peter wrote to them in his letter to tell them. And last week we went into all these details about the letter of 1 Peter, so I'm not going to give you all that background. But what I would love for you to do, I would love for you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm getting really excited, just to let you know. I'm not sure if you can hear it in my voice. I'm not sure if you can see it in the way I'm. Because I, I believe that this series is an exciting series. As we see that we are identified in Christ, and that we are identified, that we don't have to find our identity in what this world has to offer, but instead we have it what God has to offer. And that's exciting to me. And so I've been getting a little hyped up, being a little charismatic. I'm almost going Pentecostal. I'm not jumping around yet, but it might happen before the end of the day, all right? So as you get there, read this with me. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, and as we do, see what Peter says to that group and to this group, who we are as being in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. We've been in this passage now for five weeks. Do you realize that? Five of the seven, we've been in this passage. And we've been seeing what Peter has to say. And as we have, I saw something new this week as I was reading. I'm a pretty simple guy. I'm not sure if you understand that. I, I don't get much into the Greek. Even when I preach, I try and keep it as simple as possible just so I understand what I'm saying. And, and the whole thing is, is that there's a simple version of the Bible that is out there. It was written by Eugene Peterson, and it's called the Message Bible. I love the way that he put it as I read it this week. Listen to the way he writes it in the Message Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. It says, but you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Chosen to be a holy people. God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him. To tell others the night and day difference that he made for you. From nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Simple, plain English. Who are we? We are the chosen ones that God is using to do his priestly work that we talked about last week. We're set apart. That's what it means to be a holy nation. To do his work for him. And that includes telling everybody else what he's done in our lives. You know, I know a lot of people that I talk to, they, they say that, that 90% of the people that are Christians will never share their faith with anyone ever. And they say it's because I don't have the gift of evangelism. And I'm like, not everybody has the gift of evangelism, but everybody has the call to evangelize. And he says, people say, well, I just can't share. I don't know how to go about it. Let me tell you this. Simple, plain, the best way to share your story with somebody else is this. 
Tell them what God has done for you because your story is your story and what God has done for you is unique to everyone. Every person that has that story, it's unique to them because that is what God has done in their lives. Just tell them. They want to see the change. They want to see what it's all about. That's what our church is all about. Come as you are. Be changed. Go change the world. Come as you are. Just how God made you. Just how you were born in this world. Just how this world has shaped you. And be changed by God. Let him come into your life. Let Jesus come and take over and do what he has to do. And then you go and share that. That's how you change the world. That's how you change your world. It's really that simple. And I wish I could say my slogan came up and it was, it was like, oh, Matt came up with the best slogan ever. No, Jesus said it like 2,000 years ago. I just rearranged it so it sounded more modern, okay? Because he said, go and make disciples. Be a disciple. Make a disciple. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what we're doing as we move forward. And we see that. And he says in that version, tell others night and day difference that he made for you. That's all you have to do. You know how different I was before Christ? It changed my life. That's it. It's that simple. Simple, plain English. And as we see that, I've got to turn this air conditioning down. Sorry, anybody who didn't bring a sweater today. I'm on fire. Um, the, the thing is, we look at that. We look at that passage, and we've been going through it in these last three weeks that we've been going in it, and we've been diving into it. The first thing we said is, I'm a child of God. That message version says, chosen by God. Chosen by God to be a part of his family. I'm accepted I'm Do you know what it means to be accepted? To be accepted as family? To be a part of the family of God? To be a part of the one who created everything? Don't we try and find acceptance everywhere we go? Don't we try and find acceptance from our, pa- our parents, our family, our friends, our coworkers, the kids we sit next to at school? We seek acceptance from them. And the way we do it is we try and fit into what they have. We want to, in some way, some shape, fit into that group so it's going to influence uh, acceptance is going to influence what we wear it's going to influence the car we drive it's going to influence maybe even the house that we buy all these things are going to be influenced by it because we want acceptance we're driven by acceptance because we love the feeling of acceptance let me just pause for a second and tell you you are accepted you are a child of god god has accepted you into his family remember back when you were a kid Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but I, I like to play sandlot baseball. We'd always get teams together. It's either baseball or football. Whatever season was going on, that's what we played. And as we played those things, we always had the two best kids were the captains. And then it went down the line. I want you, I want you. I want you, I want you. What did you never want to be? The last one. Because you weren't accepted. You were just taken on. That was it. You were just, God never said, you know what, you're, all right, come on. That was never his response. God said, I want you. You're the first pick. He wants you. We are accepted. On the other hand, not only are we accepted, God says that we are a priest. Peter tells us that we are a priest. We do this priestly work, and as we see this priestly work, we are chosen to do his work, to speak for him on his behalf. You know what that means to me? It means that I am capable. The God of the universe found me capable to do the work that he has for me. He found me capable in some way to go out and do this. I'm not sure about you, but if you've ever been in a group of people Maybe in science class or maybe at work that you got this group project. Is there anybody on that team you ever found that wasn't quite capable? 
and you didn't want to give them the work because you knew they were going to fail? Yeah, I think we all did that. Or maybe you're the one, and you're wondering why you never got to work with the group. But that, that's, that's it. The thing is, is they, they found you not capable, but God says, I've got this huge plan, and I'm completely trusting in you to go and do it. I'm completely trusting in you to lay down your life, to lay down your pride, and go and do what I've called you to do. The third thing that I saw, and we're going to talk about this today, is this, in that passage. I am a possession of God's. I am a possession of God's. You know what that means? It means that he paid a price for me. He paid a price for me. And, you know, I don't get into the KJV very much. But in the KJV version, it actually says that not we are a possession of God's, or not that he bought us with a price, but it says we're peculiar people. And I found that to be a weird translation, because the word peculiar means odd. And I'm like, well, people kind of think we're odd, so maybe that's what it's talking about. And I started looking at it, and I realized the word actually that peculiar comes from, it means a possession, one's property, or something obtained. And I thought, one's property? You know, I never thought about that way before, that we are bought with a price. We are valuable. Because you know what price he paid for you and for me? Tell me, what price did he pay for you and for me? His son, Jesus Christ. That is pretty valuable. That is where we find our value. We are accepted, we are capable, we are valuable. Now, I want to tell you a little something, a little story about when I was 10 years old in 1986, okay? 1986 came along and a new set of basketball cards came out. And this new set of basketball cards that came out were called the Fleer Premier. Now, there had been no basketball cards really put out since 1982. So for four years, there was a gap. And Fleer put out these basketball cards. Well, at the same time these basketball cards came out, there was a kid from North Carolina that made it into, into the NBA. He went to the Chicago Bulls. Maybe you've heard of him before. His name's Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan was one of the premier cards of the Fleer premier set. And I had gone, I wasn't thinking anything. I was 10 years old. All I cared about was basketball at the time because that's what season it was. So I bought a bunch of packs of basketball cards. These Fleer Premier, 1986-1987, had Charles Barkley, Hakeem Olajuwon, career, uh, uh, had Michael, uh, sorry, Magic Johnson, had, um, why am I blanking on the name? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, that was the word I was looking for. And, and all these cards were in there. Well, guess what? I got each one of those. And as I got each one of those, I also got this one that said Michael Jordan. It looked like this. Now, i got to be honest with you. At 10 years old, you keep cards of the guys you like. You get rid of the cards of the guys that are on the bulls. Okay? That's just the way it is. It's kind of like even now. You don't keep the cowboy football cards. It doesn't matter who's on it. And, and you just get rid of it. So at 10 years old, that's what I was thinking. And at 10 years old, I can remember the kid I gave it to. That card right there. I gave it to Ronald Prophet. He was a friend of mine, big Bulls fan. I gave it. I think he gave it back to me for a sack of marbles or something like that. Let me tell you a little something about this card. This is a rookie card of a set that was brand spanking new. I didn't know any different. I was 10. But now, you want me to tell you that if this, ten, this card was graded out at a gem mint 10, which means it's the best quality. Now, I was 10, so it probably wouldn't have graded out that anyway. But even in its worst case of a gem mint 7, it's $875. At gem mint 10, the average going price for this card is $16,500. You know what that sack of marbles is worth right now? 
Exactly. Now, this brings me to a question. How much value, or how do you determine how much something is value? It's by worth of what somebody's willing to pay for it, isn't it? Because honestly, even that card, I wouldn't go out and pay $16,500 for it because it's really not worth that much to me, but somebody out there is willing to pay that. Something of valuable or something that is determined by value is the amount that somebody's willing to pay. I have all those other cards sitting in a closet. I have Akeem Olajuwon. I have Charles Barkley. I have, I have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I have Magic Johnson. I have James Worthy. All these guys, and those cards are worth 50 to 100 bucks. But the only thing that it's really worth right now in my closet is the paper that it's sitting on. Because I've never said, does anybody want to give me 50 or 100 bucks for these? Because that's how we determine the values, what somebody's willing to pay. God paid the ultimate price with his son. That's how valuable you are. You are worth one Jesus to him. And that is huge. Huge. The question is, and as we've seen in the theme of the songs as we sang this morning, is how do we respond? How are we supposed to respond? The first thing I believe we need to do is we need to believe that it's true. Because we can sit in here and we can listen to it and we can soak it in and say, well, that was really good and he was really excited so it sounded really, it made me happy when I left. That's great and all. But if you don't believe it's true, it doesn't matter. You need to believe that it's true that you are accepted into God's family. You need to believe that it's true that he finds you capable to do his work. You need to believe that it's true that you are worth one Jesus to him and you are valuable. Believe that it is true. That is the first thing we need to do. The second thing we need to do is found in verse 10 of that, that scripture that we read in second, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. It says in verse 10, we need to proclaim the excellencies of God. To proclaim the excellencies of God, or as it says in that message version, to tell others the night and day difference that he made in you from nothing to something to reject it to accept it. We need to tell people that. We need to share that with people. We need to go out and proclaim. You know what I noticed in this verse that I didn't notice before, but I saw it when I was studying this week? As it never says that we need to go out and tell the world what they've got wrong or how they're doing it wrong. It says we need to go out and tell the world how great life is in the Son of God and let them figure out the rest. That's what we need to do. Let them see the life change that's taking place in our lives. We're telling how excellent God is in Christ Jesus. That's number two. Number three, it also says we need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's how we respond. We abstain from the passions of the flesh. Look what it says in verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, it says in the next verse. But even more so, I want you to see what it says in the message version. Like a, Once again, that, that simple version that's in there. It says this, Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourself cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. When we look at that, think about what it has to say to us. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Isn't that awesome? Because don't we have a problem with ourselves? Isn't that when we sing, I lay me down, that that really is a difficult thing to actually pull off, to actually lay ourselves down? Our ego, our pride gets in the way, and it says don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. We need to not only proclaim the excellencies, 
and abstain from the passions of the flesh, I truly believe we need to live like God says. That we are told how to live. We are given this kind of outline to to stay within. And as we live that way, people are going to see it. And we're going to live like children of His. See, I tell my kids this. That you represent your family. Wherever you go, you represent your family. The way we behave does reflect onto those whom we belong. And so if we are behaving in a way and we're reflecting God in a way, maybe we should change and abstain from the passions of the flesh and live in a way that is exemplary and showing that God is who he says he is. We need to live as we believe God says is who he is, and we need to live as if we believe we are who God says we are. We need to live that way, not just speak it. If we did that, how different would our lives be? And how different would the lives be of those who surround us? And they see us and they say, there's something different about you and I want it because my life is miserable. We can put on a pretty face, but a lot of people out there, their lives are hurting. And they're missing the one thing. They'll look everywhere for their identity. They'll look in the cars. They'll look in the money. They'll look in the houses, whatever it might be. But identity is found in Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that is eternal. That is it. Then there's number four that kind of, recaps all of what he said that being God's possession being bought by God being owned by God as we are accepted as we are capable as we are valuable and bought at a price if you're bought by somebody if you're owned by somebody what word would you use to describe that slave now that word it's got some negative connotation to it It's got some negativity that's tied to it. The word slave. Slavery is not something that is viewed as as something positive. Because horrible things throughout history have happened in slavery. And even not just history, but going on right now with human trafficking and all the things that are taking place around this world. You know there's 21 million slaves in this world right now? As we speak, there's more slaves right now than there's ever been in, in all the history of the world. And we look at that and we say, slavery, how can the Bible talk about us being slaves? Well, it's talked about in just a little bit of a different way. And the thing is, I read this this book a a while back, and I was kind of referred to it as I went through this week. But it was written by John MacArthur, and it's actually called Slave. And he believes there was a bit of a cover-up in the 1600s when when the English translations were being made of the Bible. And that, that cover-up is this. There's a word that's in, in the Bible that is used by Paul, it's used by Timothy, it's used by Peter as they introduce themselves. It's even used by James, the brother of Jesus, in his book. And the word is, is doulos. Now the word doulos translated in the English scripture is either servant or bondservant. But the actual word doulos in the Greek means slave. Now let me ask you a question. Is there a difference between a servant and a slave? Yes or no? If you're a slave, you're owned. If you're a servant, you're paid. You're there, you're hired, you're under commitment, but you're not owned. As a slave, you are owned. You are full-on owned, and that's the difference in this. And what he's saying is is that the English translation was made to be less, well, negative. 
But we missed it because what it means to truly be a slave is something that, that Paul was trying to communicate, something that Peter was trying to communicate, something that, that James was trying to communicate. And what we see is, is that in Jewish culture at the time when they were communicating, it was very okay to be a slave. And I know that might sound weird, but, but one-fifth of all of Rome was slaves. One out of every five people was slaves. And as we see it, Jewish culture actually had that if someone fell on hard times or someone went deep into debt, they could sell themselves as a slave. They could sell themselves as a slave. And there were some stipulations that went along with that. Whoever they sold them to had to take care of them. And as they did that, they also had the option that after six years of work, they were able to be sent off. And not just sent off, not just sent on their way, but sent off with stuff in their hands. Check this out, what it talks about in Deuteronomy 15, chapter 12, or sorry, chapter 15, verse 12, verses 7 through 17. It says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. This is a command coming down from God himself. You shall remember that when you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord gave God, uh, or sorry, the, and the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this day. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you. If the slave says to you, I'm not gonna leave because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, since he's been taken care of, he doesn't wanna leave. Then you shall take an awl, which is a giant piercing object. You shall put it through his ear into the door. That's some commitment right there. I want to stay with you. All right, put your head against the door. Kink! You know, but the, the, and then it says, Then you shall take that awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. See, slaves were given an option to stay with their masters after the six years. And in that, there was a commitment that was taken on, and they took on the mark that people would see them and see that there was an awl that had gone through their ear. There was a piercing in their ear, and they say, I understand, you're with him forever. Does that make a little bit more sense now when God had Paul, and God had Timothy, and God had Peter, and God had James, right, that they are slaves of Jesus Christ? That they are marked with the Holy Spirit and said, he is with him forever? See, it changes the way we even see that. But how does it apply to us? How does it apply to us? Well, when Paul, when Peter, when James, when Timothy write this in the beginning of each of their letters, they don't identify themselves as anything else first. Even James. And James is the brother of Jesus. That's a pretty all right title to have. Hey, I'm the brother of Jesus. No, he said I'm the slave of Jesus. How many of you in here have a brother that you want to say that you're a slave to versus just the brother of? Yeah, exactly. But James, obviously, there was something that was going on in his heart and his mind to say, I am a slave, I am a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am marked with him. Like them, we are slaves to Christ. We are slaves to Christ, but before Christ, we were ruined. We were bankrupt. We were in debt to sin, and he bought us with a price. And he bought us, and he purchased us, and he made us his own. He gave us a new life. He made us a home with him. And you know what? He gave us a reason to truly live. He gave us that reason so we are a slave to him. And we're not doing it out of obligation, but we're doing it out of love and gratitude. We're doing it in a way that says, I want to be with him. 
Because guess what? We serve a God that we know is the greatest thing in all of the universe, in all of everything. He is the greatest. We know that. Look at what David says in Psalm 84.10. We've probably sung the song a time or two, but it says, Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your house than thousand elsewhere. This is what it says in the ESV. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be the bouncer in the house of my God than to dwell, to be in the midst, to be in all the party scene of the tent of wickedness. I would rather be on the outside but still kind of right there, a part of it, than be in the middle of all the negativity. He's saying God is the greatest. How often do we forget this though? How often do we get confused and think that what we need to serve is ourselves? How often is it that we think to ourselves, I need to listen to what I think versus to what actually God actually says? We start getting in the way of it all. If you think about it, I want to ask you a question. At the beginning of Christianity, maybe you've walked the Romans road before and that's how you were led to the Lord. Romans 10.9 tells us, the very first thing that we need to do to be a follower of Christ. Let me read it for you and see if you can figure out what it says to do. Because, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, just giving you three words there, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What's the first thing we need to do? Confess with our mouth that what? Jesus is Lord. What's a Lord? What's the Lord? When we look at this whole picture of everything, we call Jesus Lord all the time. Uh, uh, the songs, all three of them, we call Jesus Lord. What's the Lord? It's a master, which means we are a slave. Very good. When was the last time that you saw any movie about any sort of slavery, about anything at all, that the Lord was told what to do by the slave? Ever? No. Then why do we live like that? Why do we call Jesus Lord and then live as if we're in charge? It's a question that we need to let soak in. I lay me down. I'm not my own. I didn't buy my freedom. God bought my freedom. He is the one who owns me. Hand on my heart, this much is true. There is no life apart from you. You guys were singing those words just 20 minutes ago? It's exactly what we need to be thinking, though. Think about the life that Jesus lived here on earth. He is the Lord, yet he lived a life that was completely opposite of what a Lord in charge would live. He set an example for us. Check out what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Doesn't that generally be the thing that gets in our way is our selfish ambition and our vain conceit? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this in mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, this being Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a what? A servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He put himself 
below by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, he came as a servant. He lived as a servant. He was a slave. To who? To the wishes of God, wasn't he? He demonstrated what it meant to be a servant. He told us what it meant to be a servant. Check this out in John chapter 13. You've probably heard this passage before. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking on a towel, he tied it around his waist. He poured the water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. We've talked about this before. We've talked about how gross feet are. We know that they're walking around this Passover, so there's lots of people with lots of animals, and animals don't use restrooms like they should, and these guys are walking around in sandals, so there's all kinds of stuff on these guys' feet. And Jesus, the creator of all things, gets down on his knees to take a lowly, lowly foot-washing position to demonstrate what we're to do. And this is what it says in verse 12. When he had washed their feet, he put on the outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do what? You do them. Don't just sing about them. Don't just talk about them. Don't just come in and get your Sunday film and say, that made me feel really good. Do them. Live a life that says, I believe that I'm valuable. I believe that I'm accepted. I believe that I'm capable. I believe that I've been called to go out there and he's going to use me. Live it out. Do you know what they're arguing about while this was all going on? Luke chapter 2 records it. The argument that took place was, who is the greatest? All the disciples are like, who's the greatest? Hey, is it me? Is it me? Oh, I get, look where I get to sit at the table, blah, 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 blah. Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garment, wraps himself in a towel, starts washing their feet. You want a piece of humble pie? He just kicked him right in the teeth with it. He got down and he said, this is what it means. As a matter of fact, if you are a follower of Christ, we are challenged to wash people's feet. Not literally, but figuratively, to take off ourselves to lay it down and to serve others we need to embrace the identity that we have as a slave as a servant you know why because god told us to if you've ever been to one of our ownership classes one of our core values that we hold on to is that save people serve people save people serve people if you ever walk into a restaurant and there is a servant a server that is over here, and they choose not to serve you, are they really a server? If they never bring you anything, if you're their table, and they never do anything, are they a server? Or do they just have a title of a server? I read a quote this morning from Augustine. just happened to be on the ministry grid thing I was reading. No one can be a good bishop if he loves his title and not his task. And I went, well, that's appropriate. I'll go ahead and write that in my notes today. Because isn't that it? Who cares what your title is if you're not living it out? I am a slave to Christ. You know what I need to be then? A slave. I need to serve him. 
And how do we do that? How do we effectively live out the way of being a servant to Christ? The first thing is this. We have to serve the master's family. We have to serve the master's family. A bondservant or a slave, they chose to be with that person, their owner, and their family. Why? Remember what it said back in Deuteronomy 15? If you love them, if you've held on to what they believe, if you are right there with them and you love them, serve them. We're to serve the master's family. Who's the master's family when it applies to us? The people of the church. The people of the church. We're to serve the people of the church. God has given each and every one of you a spiritual gift. If you are marked with the Holy Spirit, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a spiritual gift. And the one of the reasons why he gave that to you is so that God's family could benefit from your contribution. The family suffers if you choose not to serve. The family suffers if you forget that you were a marked servant, that you were marked with the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we need to serve because we're managing God's grace. We're managing God's grace. In Jewish culture, a servant was entrusted with some of the responsibility of managing the owner's property or his, his land or his business. And he had that opportunity to do that, and he did it through serving and taking care of that. For us, serving is a management of God's grace. Check out what it says in 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. We've received a gift. We use it to serve because we're ministering and administering God's grace. So when you're in here serving the children, you know what you're doing? You're pouring out grace and mercy and compassion on these kids because you want to see their lives change. Because they are coming as they are. They're being changed. And guess what? They're going to go change the world. Same thing with you. Same thing if, I don't care if you're cleaning up this place on a Saturday morning. I know that Marty and Joanna come in every other week and they clean up. Have you guys ever walked in here and been like, this place is a pigsty? Never once. You know Why? Because they take care of it. And we have a team that rotates and does that. And you know how much that makes a difference that people actually come in? Have you ever walked into somebody's house that was an absolute sty and you're like, never going back there again? If you make it in the front door to begin with. That's the same way it is at God's house, right here, when they're coming in. We're bringing people in. And that is a way that we serve. We're administering God's grace. We're showing off His greatest resource, the greatest thing that He's ever given us. He's given us time. He's given us money. He's given us creation. He's given us breath in our lungs. But the greatest thing He's ever given us is His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are passing that on to other people when we serve. We cannot take serving lightly. We can't do it. Our faithfulness to Him and His family is essential. It's essential. Imagine this. What happens if Jesus had flaked out on his service? We're not here. We're gathering together at some big, huge court, and somebody's slitting the goat's throat, and hopefully that's going to work and atone for our sins for a little while. If Jesus had flaked out. But he tells us he came not to be served, but to serve and pay and lay down his ransom for many. His life is a ransom for many. He asks us to serve others as our response to him servicing us, to him taking care of us, to him laying down his life for us. Let me tell you a little something. When we were in, uh, we were in Las Vegas these last couple of, couple of things with, uh, with going through this church plant class, they brought up a, um, 
they brought up a, a, a ship that is the church. And they said every church has these people in the ship. And every church has these people that, that you need to, to bring along. And some are serving and some are not. And this is basically the way it breaks down. There's a passenger, there's a crew, there's a stowaway, and there's a pirate. And the way it breaks down, if you came to our last ownership class, we talked about this a little bit. But, but there's, there's a vision. And our vision as a church is to bring people along in their relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to see them take steps closer to Jesus. Whether If they're far away from Jesus and they never met Jesus before, or if they think they're as close as they possibly can be, everybody can get closer. And our job as a church is for people to come as they are, no matter where they're at, to be changed, and then go change the world. That's what our whole thing is all about. And if you grasp that, and you understand that, and you are contributing to that, which means you want to see people come along, you want to serve, you want to be a part, and you're contributing to that vision, you are part of the crew. You're on the ship, and you're in the right direction, you're going where it needs to go, and you're working to help us get there. Now, next to the crew, you'll see the passenger. The passenger is a person that's along for the ride, and they're loving every second of it, but they're not contributing. They're not investing in what this vision is. They're not seeing it take place. They don't see the end goal in mind of seeing lives changed. But they, they like it, so they understand it. They're just not doing it. They're along for the ride, and they like the shows. Maybe you're a passenger. Then you have the stowaway. The stowaway has no idea what's going on. They're merely on the ship. Maybe it's somebody who's new, and they're just trying to grasp everything. That's great. The cool thing is the stowaway, the passenger, and the crew, they can all be upped. You can move from stowaway to passenger. You can move from passenger to crew. And even as a crew, you can be a part of the big vision of going out and planting new churches and, and, and holding on to that. But there's one more person on that ship that you'll see there. That is the pirate. The pirate. Now, the crew, they understand the vision. They understand where we're going. They're contributing to it. The passenger, they understand the vision. They're not contributing, though, but they're going to get there because we're going to challenge them to do that. The stowaway, we're going to challenge them to at least get the vision and then start contributing to it. But the, the pirate, they, they don't get it, but they sure are contributing. Let me ask you a question. When there's a pirate on a ship, what are you supposed to do with them? What are you supposed to do with the pirate? Walk the plank. That's right. Walk the plank. Got to get rid of pirates. The, pre- the sad thing is, is that that the church, because it's full of fallen human beings, has lots of pirates. It has people that, that they're contributing to a vision. It's just theirs. It's not the vision of the church. It's not the vision that, that God has laid before the church. It's their own. They're trying to change it, and they're trying to take over. They're trying to create a mutiny. They're trying to create problems. You know what? There's a lot of church plants, not us, but there's a lot of church plants that started because of pirates. And they wanted to go and do something else because what the church had in mind wasn't good enough for them. And they tried to take people with them, just like in a mutiny would happen, trying to get people on their side. We need to, as we move forward, understand that pirates, we need to get on board and get on board with the vision and where we're going and how we're going and what we're going to go and what we're going to do next. Even if that means just be a stowaway and be along for the ride for right now until you become a passenger, understand the vision, and then go and incorporate that vision into your life, into the life of the church, into reaching out to people. It would change everything. And if not, these are the most painful words I'd ever have to say to anybody. Come and talk to me. Because it may be time for you to go. That's just the reality of it all. If there's a vision that you're following that isn't ours, and you're trying to create separation from what the church is, then that's not what God wants. 
It's about being in his family. It's about serving his family. It's not about trying to destroy his family. It's understanding that we are acceptable, that we are capable, that we are valuable. And working together in that and changing other people's lives or being a part and letting God change them through us. See, the early Christian writers, they kept calling themselves doulos. They kept calling themselves doulos to the churches because they were proudly wearing this name badge that said, I am a slave to Christ. They proudly wore that. They embraced their identity as a slave, as a servant to Christ. Their identity impacted how they lived. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. The reality is, is you are a slave. The response you should have as you walk out of here is to serve the master and his family. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you do. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that made it all possible even to begin with. Even in the fact that we are in him, and because we are in him, we are chosen. We are a child of yours. We are accepted. Not only are we a child of yours, but God, we are called to be your priest, to do your work, to go out and share your word, to, to let people know through our lives and through our mouths who you are and what you have done. And God, not only that, we need to let people know that we are valued And we are worth one Jesus to you, and guess what? They are too. They need to grasp that. They need to hold on to that because they're finding their value in so many temporary things when the one eternal thing is waiting right there. God, I pray that today that we get on board with your vision, that we are a part of the crew moving this church forward, the church, the church that surrounds Rio Rancho, the church that surrounds New Mexico, the church that surrounds the world. God, that we're a part of it and we're moving forward because we're called to be a disciple and we're called to make a disciple. That God, if we got on board with that, how many people would come to know you as your personal Savior? How many people would change their lives? How many people would come into the doors of the church to grow and then be able to go out and reach more people? That is how revival happens. It's not some big tent. It's us inside of our hearts changing our lifestyle to say we are a follower. We want to be on the crew and we want to be a part of what you're doing. God, I pray for everybody in this room that somehow, some way, you lay one person on their mind, one person on their heart to be a disciple, to disciple that by October 31st next year, that our church is double because everybody has at least invested in just one person. And that's just one. God, change our hearts. Give us the passion. Give us the fire. Give us the love for you to say you changed our lives. You can change theirs. God, use us. Because we are capable. You have found us worthy to be able to be used in that way. Use us. When we wake up in the morning, say, God, this is your day. Use us how you want to use us. Get us on board and make us a part of the crew that we see what you're doing and that we can be a part of you changing this world. We pray it all in your name, God. Amen.